Combined sewer overflows, or CSOs, are having an unwelcome moment these days. CSOs occur when a combined wastewater collection system that handles rainwater runoff, domestic sewage, and industrial wastewater is overwhelmed. For instance, during a heavy rainfall event. When the volume of wastewater in this combined system exceeds capacity of the wastewater treatment plant, untreated human and industrial waste discharges directly into nearby streams, lakes, or rivers. As you can imagine, CSOs are highly problematic for municipalities. And the frequency is only getting worse as more and more weather events caused by climate change impact our waterways. While CSOs are nothing new, some municipalities are taking innovative approaches to alleviate them, including the city of Columbus, Ohio. This episode of Xylem Solving Water podcast features a conversation with Asad Chowdhury and Dax Blake from Xylem on how the city mitigated its significant instances of CSOs into the Scioto River. Here's the discussion. Welcome to today's episode of Through the Water Cycle on the Solving Water podcast from Xylem. I'm Amanda Holloway, joined by Dax Blake, Client Solutions Manager for Xylem, and Asad Chowdhury, Business Development Manager for Xylem Water Utilities, to talk about a forward-thinking deep tunnel project that has all but eliminated combined sewer overflows that were affecting the Scioto River. Dax and Asad, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Let's just start with some introductions, uh, Dax, if you can uh, give us an overview of what you do for Xylem. And then you were also with the city of Columbus before this. So if you could talk a little bit about what you did for them, that'd be great too. Uh, happy to. Um, so yeah, I'm. my title today is Client <laughs> Solutions Manager. Um, and you know, I've been through a few titles at Xylem. And actually, it was of the former Eminet family that uh, became part of Xylem just about three years ago. So, you know, now with a, a huge emphasis on digital solutions, finding ways to do more with less and extract the maximum value out of our assets. Which, uh, again, it, it, um, to be a part of the super innovative folks that uh, were formerly Mnet and all the folks that have joined the digital solutions groups from the other uh, companies that have joined on with the whole Xylem's digital solutions. That is where I'm connected. And so I'm, I'm basically part of the business development team for Xylem Digital Solutions. Turning back the clock a little bit, I, I, I did uh, uh, a little bit of time with a utility in Northern Kentucky, Sanitation District number one, but probably more importantly, most importantly, and frankly, one of the, the parts of my career that I'm super proud of is uh, the time I spent working with the City of Columbus. And so with City of Columbus, I served as the administrator for the Division of Sewerage and Drainage for roughly about 10 years. And in that role, basically, I had the, the oversight, you know, it's in a municipal setting, so uh, uh, so there was still a whole lot of other governance around, but I had oversight basically over the entire sewer and stormwater program. So the capital plans, the operations, the consent decree, obviously, as part of a larger city, there was a lot of other folks involved in that, but was, you know, know that that uh, was able to be involved in a lot of things that will be impacting Columbus, Ohio, and the surrounding communities uh, long after I'm gone. So pretty fulfilling. <laughs> That's great. And that's exactly what we're going to get into in a little bit here. But um, Asad, welcome back. I know you've been on the show before. Um, if you could just remind our listeners of what you do for Xylem. Sure. Um, I'm a business development manager for the large pump portfolio um, that mostly go into wastewater, stormwater. And I've been with Xylem for just a little over three years. I've been in the pumping technology world since 2002. So just a little under 18 years. And I would say halfway split between supporting municipal and then industrial. So 
And the funny thing is, these last two years with with Xylem, I've been supporting both municipal and industrial projects. So um, it's very interesting to see how you know you work differently each one of the segments. But um, yeah, it's been quite a ride. It's a lot of fun. And and lately, I would say the last couple of years have had the opportunity to present um, and speak at WEFTEC um, and a couple of the local conferences in New, Ewing, New England and uh, New York and uh, New Jersey, specific towards stormwater solutions. Yeah, fantastic. So, I mean, I'm just going to start out with, you know, the burning question on everyone's mind, which is, COVID-19 and, and how things are going for you both, uh, considering that pandemic started. So Dax, why don't you lead us off? How have things been going for you? Uh, you know, the scenery hasn't changed much. <laughs> um, you know, it, it is, it's uh, been, a, a, you know, from the Xylem perspective, uh, it's been a real challenge, you know, just being able to interact and connect with, with uh, uh, the clients that we serve. You know, they they are they've been under a tremendous amount of stress. There was a, also a significant amount of distraction in the early phases. Of this I think we're starting to see things you know settle down. I know I was just on the phone with uh, the plant manager in Columbus uh, yesterday, and you know he's you know they're back to full staff you know from an operations standpoint, but a lot of the uh, the office staff are still working remotely. You know, so project managers. And, and uh, folks like that. So, you know, I think that that we're we're getting some semblance of normalcy back, but still, you know, very much on edge. And uh, yeah, you know, waiting for that vaccine. Yeah, as we all are. <laughs> yes. What about you, Asad? It's uh, I, I, not too much of a pivot from the work from home standpoint because I I work was working from my home office and then the branch office here you know, pretty much most of the time. And the branch office is very small. It's not that big uh, out of Portland. I think, you know, I'm super kudos to Zoom and Microsoft Teams for being able to handle this on this plethora of online virtual calls. But I got to say, I do miss the uh, hands-on. When you're just in front of clients, it makes a big difference because I used to take like an end technology show and tell, I would pass around an impeller, for instance, or even pass around a piece of our monitoring equipment just so that people can understand exactly what I'm talking about. That's one component. The other part is engagement. When you have more than 30, 40 people on a call, there's a lot of multitasking going around. So I know I'm guilty of it, but (laughs) uh, it's when you're in a face-to-face meeting, there's a little bit more engagement, I think, from, from the standpoint of, you know, getting your message across and getting people to truly understand exactly the uh, solutions being presented. So that, that part I miss. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm with Dax. I'm really hoping and praying that this vaccine comes really soon. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to get back out on the road again. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, we're all hankering for some, some socialization, some FaceTime, some traveling, for sure. So challenges that you're experiencing right now, what are some of those, whether they're related to COVID or not, in the area of stormwater? Oh, goodness. Um, challenges in the area of stormwater. Uh, you know, I mean, it, I see so much in our industry at this point in time is, is not, I guess, not necessarily changing. You know, the sewer overflows persist and how we address them, uh, you know, the tools in our toolbox have been more or less uh, the same, uh, with the exception of, I think, some of the digital solutions that are, are really starting to push the envelope. But, I mean, you know, we've all talked about green infrastructure and, 
and conveyance and storage and treatment. And, uh, you know, so I, I think those struggles just continue and persist. What's interesting is I was just looking at, at the list of CSO communities that, that US EPA keeps. And, you know, it is, it is, you know, it's almost like you can start to see the, the horizon or, or the end of the road. Um, there's still much that has to be accomplished to get there. And I think most, most communities would say as much. But it's, you know, as you start going down the list, it's like, you know what, this, this utility's got a handle on it. This utility's got a handle on it. So in that respect, I think that uh, we're starting to see the horizon. But, uh, you know, again, how things play out with the COVID and, and the affordability of these things uh, is going to be interesting to watch in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months. Yeah, and let's let's talk about CSOs for a minute. I think our you know our audience has a pretty good idea and understanding of what a CSO is, but um, we're here to talk specifically today about um, a solution that the city of Columbus, Ohio, implemented to help with their CSOs. So it'd just be great to sort of give some background about you know what the city was experiencing with regards to that, and um, then we'll kind of get into the the good stuff solutions. So Columbus is, has been, I think, pretty aggressive. Uh, and, and so when I, when I started in Columbus back in 2005, they'd already done a, a fair amount to try and address their combined sewer overflows, but uh, they had just gotten uh, consent decrees, uh, two of them, only with the state of Ohio, not with the federal government. Uh, the first one, I think 2002, was, was to address SSOs, and in 2004, it was to address CSOs. But... Um, you know, going into both of those, they'd already, you know, even looking at Ohio EPA's data, it could demonstrate significant improvement in water quality. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, there's still the human health impact of, of uh, sewer overflows. You know, the bacteria concentrations pose a serious risk. And, you know, Columbus certainly had its fair share of combined sewage overflows at that particular time as well. So, uh, so there was still plenty of ground to cover, but uh, I think that they were starting from a good position. Um, and, uh, and the leadership of the city at the time was also, I think, uh, very, very positive. Not to say that it's not now, because it certainly is. Um, but uh, it was just, I don't know, the right chemistry at the right time where, you know, uh, an environmental lawyer that was there to help make some of the policy decisions kind of set the groundwork for uh, doing the right thing by the community for the long term and uh, and not getting caught up in trying to just you know be short-sighted with the financials on it so that was that was really exciting to join the city at that particular juncture so absolutely and I would say that that's you know we, we've got some other topics on our list for future shows here that talk about you know the the fact that this sort of foresight and that ability to go ahead and look at the the bigger picture, the long term, with regards to infrastructure updates, environmental moves, th- that kind of thing, is really going to set utilities apart from others. You know, in terms of and the policy decision that got made uh, in those, uh, I would say probably late two thousand four, early two thousand five, was was uh, to control the separate sanitary overflows to a ten year recurrence frequency. Some of the CSOs actually got the same target, you know, so along the downtown riverfront uh, in Columbus, uh, the target got set at 10 years, which is extraordinary from a CSO policy standpoint. I mean, you know, there's, there's hardly a community out there that, that uh, would set that as, a, as an actual target. Uh, and then the remainder of the CSOs, uh, with the exception of one, one place, uh, full control in a typical year, which is, again, uh, a very high standard. A lot of communities are, fading, you know, uh, uh, trying to do something much less than that. So 
but it was a case of, you know, we, we're going to make the right targets uh, from an environmental standpoint, and then we'll use schedule to achieve the, the affordability for the community. And things were pretty dire there, right? In terms of CSOs, like it was a pretty bad situation. I can't remember exactly. I want to say that the the overflow volume was was maybe around 1.8 billion gallons, and that was in what is called a typical year. So, uh, so there was many years that were not typical, and when they're not typical, that means there's usually a lot more. So, wow. Um, so yeah, there's there's uh, uh, definitely there's a lot of sewage going into the river. So which is. Not good for for a lot of reasons. So what what made this project so challenging and like a standout on its own, right? So I referenced the deep tunnel system a little bit. So if you could just talk us through kind of what made this project so challenging. So Columbus had or has a fairly compact combined sewer drainage area. I mean, you know, like many cities, it it uh, it's the oldest parts of town, the central core. And so, you know, to give folks that maybe don't know Columbus's geography that well, but uh, downtown Columbus and then the combined sewer area extends northward from downtown to encompass the Ohio State University campus. So, uh, uh, so most people probably have at least seen the horseshoe <laughs> uh, from some aerial footage as the result of one of the many uh, blimps that fly over the stadium there. So, uh, so you know, the, but that downtown section, you know, south of campus and, and whatnot is where the, the lion's share or the, the largest volumes of overflow were occurring uh, in the past. And so uh, one of the major prongs of the CSO long-term control plan, which was really part of the wet weather management plan, but was was this tunnel. And so that tunnel basically goes from a treatment plant that actually goes back to, my goodness, was it 1913 or 1908? I don't recall exactly the, the first treatment plant uh, there, uh, which later was replaced in the late 20s, early 30s. But that that treatment facility and that that CSO projects, uh, the tunnel is basically paralleling the old sewer that that was built back in the 30s, the late 20s, early 30s, to provide relief. And uh, so it's picking up all those CSOs in the downtown riverfront. And then the most notable one, and there's some great papers written about this facility, uh, the storm tanks, where the bulk of the sewage came from. It was the Whittier Street storm tanks. And so I would say the Whittier Street storm tanks alone were maybe like was maybe 1.2 of that 1.8 billion gallons of overflow. Some of those got directly connected into this tunnel. Others were were not directly connected, but the tunnel was designed and managed, operated in such a way that it basically prevents those those overflows from happening. You know, again, up to a 10-year recurrence frequency, which uh, some of those those points were discharging, you know, many times in a single year. So a pretty dramatic shift in. Uh, uh, downtown overflows. I mean, they they virtually cease to exist, uh, and in some cases, they completely cease to exist because they are tied directly into the tunnel. Uh, the tunnel does have a downstream overflow point itself. Uh, so, in, in the event that the system still gets overwhelmed, and it can and will get overwhelmed, it'll overflow at the downstream end, but much less frequently and much less volume than what was there in the past. So, what was you know the straw that? broke the camel's back in terms of the city deciding they wanted to take this on. This has been happening for a while. Was it, was it policy changes that you're talking about? So many uh, communities are, are dealing with uh, wet weather overflows, you know, whether it's through consent decrees with EPA or administrative orders. You know, in, in Columbus's case, it was, it was a state consent decree, and so they negotiate with the state of Ohio. To arrive at the tunnel option uh, was, was an interesting you know, sort of uh, transition. There was, there was a pretty 
intensive planning period that you know I was involved in actually before I joined the city of Columbus, where we wrote the first wet weather plan, and and it was my involvement in in the planning of of that consent decree program that pretty much led to me being uh, one of the folks at the city itself. And so we tested a whole wealth of alternatives. And actually, when I joined the city of Columbus, it wasn't a deep tunnel at that point in time. It was a near-surface conduit, <laughs> and conduit makes it sound uh, manageable, but it was huge, right? I mean, the tunnel itself is a 20-foot diameter tunnel, so pretty large piece of pipe. Uh, the near-surface option, I think, if I recall, was might have been at least the downstream section would have been a twin boxes that were like 16 foot wide each. So those two would have also been pretty big. You could have driven, you know, raced cars down them, right? (laughs) You know, and that that project uh, essentially migrated into a tunnel option uh, for a number of reasons, but really it was probably the community impact was the biggest thing. Okay. A massive open cut at the surface. Uh, There's a a major park complex that uh, would have been disrupted tremendously. And, and with it, I don't know, there's like, you know, 20, you know, baseball or softball fields there. So it would have cut into the revenue for Parks and Rec. It would have been disruptive in downtown Columbus. Uh, but it could have also had some awesome leave behinds that um, uh, later were realized anyhow through through other projects. But uh, it would have been a really neat triple bottom line uh, opportunity to do that downtown riverfront and is a leaf behind from a sewer project to create a, a more park space. But it became the deep tunnel because of the disruption component more than anything okay. else. And uh, it, it had some additional benefits because it got rid of some other facilities because the tunnel uh, uh, became larger. It provided both storage and conveyance. Um, so there was a downstream treatment facility that uh, uh, was able to be, you know, more or less eliminated. Um, although that we, we built a similar facility at the, even more Southern treatment facilities. So these things are a system. So you can't really look at it just like the tunnel project. There are so many other things intertwined with it. How do you make it all work together? What's, you know, how do these things uh, uh, work as a system? So it's, it's an all in one solution. That's, uh, that's what we could say. And what a good segue to you, Asad, because I was just going to ask right. you about a little bit about how the city, you know, chose Xylem for the project and then, from there, how did how did Xylem make the recommendation for the solution? Yeah, I mean, when you when you're looking at a, a tunnel project of this magnitude and and handling this much MGD, there's some several uh, factors that play into the decision making on who's the best technology provider to work with and establish a partnership with. So we're we're pretty much, I would say, experts and with years of experience built into pump station design, computational fluid dynamics, you know, model studies. We work with an outfit by the name of Clemson Hydraulics uh, here in the United States. We also have model studies at our uh, office in Sweden. Uh, essentially, what this helps verify and confirm uh, with equipment operating is preventing any, any hydraulic phenomena which would be like air entrainment, um, subsurface vortices. All of this kind of data, it's essential to overall provide a solution that's going to have a durability component, uh, but also an energy savings component. So offering high horsepower machines here, medium voltage was a big uh, part of the solution. Uh, pumps that can meet the required loads and heads uh, with a good efficiency which can provide energy savings at the end. Uh, and if, in essence, this is uh, kind of in line with our combined 
pump station design where you have high flow and low flow pumps. Um, pumps that are handling dry weather and pumps that are handling wet weather all in one uh, where you don't have the need to, to design multiple pump stations. This in essence helps save on the civil costs and you have a reduced footprint. Um, so this kind of model has been replicated at multiple locations for that very reason, because you're able to provide equipment that's durable, highly efficient, providing uh, energy savings. And then at the same time, a design that helps save on the cost of uh, civil work. Wow. So multifaceted, lots of different things. I think what's interesting is you brought up efficiency and energy savings, which, you know, my mind with the CSO goes directly to pollution into the waterways. And so it's, uh, I think the key benefit for me is to stop that or reduce it as much as possible. Um, and it sounds like here there's also some additional benefits of, of saving some, some energy and cost savings as well. Right. Yeah, and I think there, you know, Dax can allude this to this a little bit uh, more than I can, but I know that there's incentives built for utilities to meet a certain number of sustainability goals. How much are you doing for helping reduce the carbon footprint? What's being done for energy savings? I mean, this is basically the talk of now. What are we doing for sustainability? What are we doing to protect the environment? It's everybody's going green or blue, right? So that, those are the kind of directions we're going in. Uh, well, and Columbus certainly has uh, uh, their climate change objectives. Uh, it's interesting because uh, Columbus in, in, in the public utilities department also has an electricity utility. Uh, so, uh, and one of the biggest customers happens to be the sewers and drains division. So the division of power, you know, biggest customer division of sewers and drains. You know, absolutely, um, you know, efficiency, you know, and uh, trying to minimize the, the expense associated with uh, addressing the CSOs is, uh, is always going to be a struggle. And, and there's, it's almost like it's an environmental conflict or environmental trade-off there because uh, uh, the energy footprint certainly went up uh, as a result of having to do all this. But uh, it was, it was to, uh, you know, to address uh, some other major environmental issues or challenges. So, you know, what you want to do is, is uh, that uptick, you want to keep it as small as possible, right? And uh, so, yeah, that's a factor in all of it. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of results has the city seen since this went online? Was it 2017? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I don't remember the exact date, although I'm sure that uh, some of the operators of the city remember the day extremely well. It was crazy because the first day that they went live, they got hammered with a humongous storm. The tunnel filled up and it overflowed into the river on day one. Uh -huh. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't ask for, you know, like a, a more rapid opportunity to test this facility. Um, you know, that all said, you know, there, it's the tunnels filled on numerous occasions. And I think that there's an awesome team there. I am somewhat envious of my, of my successor in Columbus. You know, he's got a great team of folks there that just continue to try and improve and enhance that. And so, you know, we've helped them, you know, look at, at uh, combinations where, you know, trying to minimize the amount of flow that goes into the tunnel itself, again, to reduce that energy. So it's like, you know, can we get away with not using the tunnel and not have overflows uh, so that we can save on energy? But then there's times when it's like, okay, we want to put as much in there as we can because this is going to be a gargantuan event. And the level of sophistication the operators are getting into now is really admirable. And uh, so 
I, you know, I, I checked in with Brandon because I know that they've the amount of flow that they've actually treated. Um, I want to say, you know, last year uh, they they increased the amount that went through the treatment plants by like six billion gallons, and so this is just through, you know, the capacity that that Ores tunnel uh, or the the tunnel, deep tunnel system provides. Um, you know, their ability to leverage it and get all that flow into the treatment plant instead of it going into the river. So uh, I don't know what the percentage reduction is or the percentage uh, increase in treatment, but I mean, 6 billion gallons is, uh, you know, the population didn't change that much in Columbus, I can tell you that. <laughs> so uh, so it, it had to be the wet weather that they're capturing and conveying a tree. So um, so it's working. It's absolutely working. And, uh, and they're getting better at it. So I don't think we've actually seen the end of the the results that they're going to achieve there with, with using that infrastructure. Yeah, that's really interesting that you can take the existing system and continue to hone it. And I, my guess is you still have contacts there. You mentioned Brandon. So you talk oh, yeah. to them uh, well, regularly. Uh, you know, I so many of the folks there, I would consider friends, uh, at least friends in the profession at the very least, and some of them just pure friends. Um, so yeah, I stay in touch with them. They're also, we continue to work with them. So they're, they're clients of Xylem, uh, you know, in particular digital solutions. So when it comes to how this stuff is operated, we're helping them come up with ways to both identify opportunities to operate more efficiently, effectively, and, and empower them with the tools that give them the, the confidence that they can, you know, push the system harder. You know, it's really, you know, it's an interesting balance in, in the, tunnel project is, is right at the core of it. The tunnel basically terminates at what is essentially like the Grand Central Station of the Columbus sewer system. And there's a number of different ways it can go. It can go to the river, it can go to the Jackson Pike plant, it can go to the Southerly plant. And you know, and how do you balance that? And if you let too much of it go to either one of the plants, the plants end up getting overwhelmed and they overflow, which uh, is also unacceptable. So Balancing that whole system and, and not overwhelming it or preserving the capacity at the right times for the other parts of the city that still have to get drained and treated as well. So it's complex and, and uh, you can't expect, I think, an operator to really look at that and, and digest all of that information uh, without some sort of tools to help and support them in that regard. So, But the tunnel and how it's operated and the pumps and how they're operated are a crucial part of that equation So because they're at the terminus of the Grand Central Station of the Sewer System. To hear more discussions about challenges and trends in today's water industry, tune in to our other shows on Solving Water, a Xylem podcast, including In the Field with Gould's Water Technology about issues impacting the residential and agricultural markets, Through the Water Cycle, a series reviewing every aspect of the water utilities segment from treatment to monitoring and reuse, and the Bell & Gossip podcast focused on HVAC and plumbing systems for commercial building services. Stream, download, and subscribe for these episodes and more. When we were talking earlier, you mentioned that you know the city did a great thing in terms of looking at long-term plans and combating these CSOs. What is the lifespan of a project like this? Like, if like, is it obviously it changes with? regular maintenance and all these improvements that you're talking about ongoing, but you know, how long does something like this last? Oh my goodness. Uh, you know, when talking about a tunnel, um, the general number that, that is put around is a hundred years. I suspect it will go well beyond that. Um, what is necessary to sustain it beyond a hundred years is kind of speculative at best, but I mean, you know, you, you know, there's already pipes there. Well, heck, the, 
the pipe that parallels it um, uh, or that it augments is, you know, approaching 90 years old at least. Uh, so it's getting close to 100 years and it still seems to be going strong, taking, you know, sewage all the way from the northernmost uh, side of the city all the way down to the treatment plants uh, uh, and doing it doing it well most days. So only when it rains hard and gets overwhelmed. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how it, you know, I mean, of course we won't be here to see it, but uh, uh, you know, with, with something that extensive, it'll be more interesting maybe to see what they come up with for ways of extending its useful life. You know, what, what will they be able to do to rehabilitate it and keep it in service and, and consider, you know, I mean, right now, actually they've got a fair amount of grit accumulated in that pipe, but right now trying to figure out how to, to address and, uh, you know, to send, you know, folks down, you know, 200 feet to, you know, clean a pipe or rehabilitate a pipe is, uh, as a confined space that, uh, uh, would be very hard to, uh, to get out of. So to speak. <laughs> not a ladder. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Just reminds me of a headline I read the other day about a gentleman in a water park or aquarium aquatic park in Arizona that climbed into a pipe and got stuck and yeah didn't make it so not real sure <laughs> I'd want to do anything close to that right. yeah I don't know it's it's fun to to be able to enter these structures personally uh and uh you know some of, especially some of the older ones uh the CSO regulators through downtown Columbus again they were built late twenties, early thirties. And, uh, you can still see in the concrete, the imprint of the boards that they use the grain and, and all the boards, you can still see that like imprinted in the concrete. So it's holding up extremely well. You know, if people think about corrosion and everything else and how, how, you know, sewers are going to fail. It seems like that stuff's going to be around for a long time, but to see those structures and the, the detail and the craftsmanship that went into it, uh, is really kind of cool to experience. So, you know, the Chestnut Street regulator uh, uh, had a boat dock in it so that one could float a boat down the sewer pipe uh, in mm -hmm. Columbus, uh, presumably for inspection. Uh, no, I'm not aware of anybody in, in, uh, in the recent record that's even contemplated that, but I think there's a lot less flow in that pipe back then. So you have to duck your head down a bit to, <laughs> <laughs> to do it now. It runs a little fuller today than it did uh, back in the 1930s. So Yeah. The pumps can actually be brought up through the deep lift accessory. We have a deep lift that's attached to the upper mm -hmm. end of the pump, so you can bring the pump up. You know, 180 feet is pretty deep down there, so that's the cool thing about having a submersible pump. You don't have extended shafting. You don't have to have a motor up on a separate floor. The pump is down there. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind, and that's the other solution. You have to offer an easy method of maintaining the equipment in case, you know, when you get to that five, 10-year point for you know, whatever protocol is in place for preventative maintenance. That was a huge consideration during the design that it, it went through a number of different iterations. There was like a dry well, wet well configuration instead of submersible pumps. Uh, and that, that one ultimately got nixed. There was an enclosed structure over the, the tunnel pump station, which creates its own, you know, safety issues and entry. But, you know, thinking about the gantry crane or the crane that's used to lift those pumps out, all the management of the wires and, and uh, you know, cables and wire, you know, I mean, the electric cable going to these pumps isn't exactly small, right? It's a, it's a pretty big and very heavy piece of, of uh, wire going to each one of those pumps. And uh, yeah, how do you manage that to pull it out and, and, and service it and put it back? 
its own weight. I don't—I have no idea. And maybe you have an idea, saw But why, how much does that—that that just one wire for one pump even weigh? It's got to right. be—it's yeah. got to be a tremendous <laughs> amount. So, not something a person would hoist up about themselves. Yeah, cable cable management is definitely a big part of it when you're talking about uh, the solutions needed for maintenance and bringing those pumps up uh, when they when they need to be maintained. How do you ma- manage that that tremendous amount of cable? You've got power mm-hmm. and sensor cables there, and, and they can be quite lengthy sure. and heavy. Medium medium voltage OD is a little bit thinner than the low voltage, but these uh, it's still I see your point. It's quite heavy when you're talking about this length. Mm-hmm. So I, I know that, I mean, there was definitely some challenges and tribulations that the city went through during startup with this. Um, but um, uh, I think that that was due more to some of the electrical services and, and stuff going into to the pumping system. Um, and that's not, you know, terribly unexpected in, in, in a project of this scale. But uh, I, I know that the pumps have performed pretty well. I mean, I think the plants, uh, the staff are pretty happy with uh, the large pumps and how they functioned and, and, uh, I'm, I'm not aware of any major issues and they've been in service now several years. So of course you only get intermittent use, which in a way is, is challenging in and of itself. Cause this pumps this, you know, this system is not used for dry weather flow. It's just used for wet weather flow. So there's a little bit of flow that comes into the, the pipe that, uh, you know, just call it groundwater inputs and whatnot that they have to pump out, you know, on a regular basis. But you know, the big pumps sit idle until it rains. So. Okay. I have a, a, just a couple more questions for you guys uh, as we start to wrap up here. Um, just about a couple things for other water utilities, right? What are some of things that other water utilities can take away from this project? And how would you know if you were a good candidate for a project of this magnitude? Yeah, I think it's going forward, Amanda, a lot of attention is being put towards optimization. How good is your remote connectivity? What is your digital footprint? How strong is your digital footprint? Is, is the equipment uh, providing the data that it, that it needs to be able to provide the operator informed decisions on when to maintain? At the end, it's a lower cost on the operation side. So um, going forward, a lot of, I see this as a trend that a, utilities will be looking at solutions that help reduce their maintenance costs. And uh, when you're looking at from the design standpoint, that's where you have a a consultant involved in the middle, which is designing the overall pump station. And uh, they can look at it from a shared best practices approach and see, okay, this was a project which helped save this much on the civil costs. This was a project that helped provide this much more energy savings because of higher efficient equipment. Several factors and metrics that are built into you know, what can be uh, replicated from one station to the next. It all depends. Each each region handles stormwater differently. There's stormwater CSOs all over the place. Yet at the same time, there's MS4s, which are built in more modern infrastructure. But yeah, the two catalysts that we see here uh, with the increase in stormwater events are uh, warm weather, climate change, and the increase in population. And this is prior to COVID to urban areas. So you have more impermeable surfaces there's a lot more concrete. So that water's got to go somewhere. You got to have runoff. So um, there's going to be an increased need for stormwater projects of this magnitude. That's interesting too. I, I, I will echo Assad in saying that optimization, but I, I would take it even uh, from a broader perspective. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, struggle with is, I mean, 
This tunnel was the single largest capital project in the history of the city and probably will be uh, for many, many years to come. Um, I mean, you know, when it was all said and done, I, I don't know that for certain, but the final price tag on this thing was probably over $400 million. So uh, certainly not chump change in some ways. I think it's very cool as, you know, it's my name on the plans for, for this massive project. And, and it's, again, will be there long after I'm gone. But are there ways um, to step back and look at what is the most effective solution? And sometimes tunnels will still be on the table, but I think there's, there's optimization opportunities that we were you know, not prepared for, ready for at the time that this project was designed. And I think it's just a, an indication of how the, the industry continues to change. I mean, when we first did the wet weather plan for Columbus and the original deep tunnel project kind of, you know, came to fruition, everybody was talking about green infrastructure. Green infrastructure was like state of the art, you know, getting into, you know, how much impervious surfaces are impacting us and stormwater are impacting us. And, and, you know, now that's kind of like old news. I mean, people are still doing it. And I think that actually it's lost some of its luster that it had initially. I mean, it was sort of like the Holy grail of our, our solutions at one point in time, at least according to some. And, uh, you know, now we're kind of seeing the reality or the challenges of that, you know, technology. Um, deep tunnels uh, uh, is, a, is probably an older technology in essence. I mean, there's actually a tunnel in Columbus that was also built back in the, the, the late 20s, early 30s, the Deschler Tunnel. And uh, so they have a long history. They do work. Uh, but we need to think about how they work in the context of the larger system and how we can squeeze more, get more out of them so that we can not have such a financial impact on, on the community from, from a rate standpoint. With the, the tunnel project specifically, I think that one of the things that uh, should be a lesson learned, and I would encourage others to try and figure out how to improve on, on the design, that is probably, you know, to better manage or have a plan for how they manage grit. Um, I think that's one of the things that within a few short years, uh, they've accumulated enough grit. And they really don't even have a good way to assess it, you know, to figure out how much is really down there because you, know, you can't go put eyes on it easily. And, uh, you know, so having a, a better means of, of addressing grit would be a, a good thing. So the pumps are part of that solution, but you got to get the grit to the pumps and you got to keep the grit suspended and, uh, uh, and, and ultimately get it lifted out of the tunnel. And, and uh, clearly uh, the hydraulics of the whole system haven't it succeeded what anybody expected. But this is, you know, a tunnel of this scale is not something that gets built very often. So uh, unfortunately, it's a lesson learned. But uh, I would say other cities need to look at what happened in, and it's happened in Columbus. It's, it's overall, it's a successful project. Uh, but, you know, how can we make it better for the next round? Uh, and frankly, even to that end, you know, can, can Xylem help support in that solution potentially uh, is a very real possibility. So. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, I think that's one thing that we should all be talking more about is the lessons that come out of these types of projects, even yeah though we call them successful and they are in many ways, if we're not learning from those to improve on future projects, right. then, you know, what are we doing? So, so they're still building tunnels in, uh, in Columbus. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know when, when or if that'll end. And yeah, so it, it, it's a powerful tool in the toolbox for dealing with overflows, dealing with stormwater, um, and even looked at some of the other communities where they don't have the combined sewer overflows, but, you know, saw it said it, you know, stormwater is another place where, you know, the environmental impacts and managing that may necessitate more of these. And handling grid is a big point, uh, Dax. That's, uh, I know that's, uh, there's a large CSO project here in Portland, uh, which was 
final constructed end of 2007. I know about this because I used to work for the company that provided those pumps. They're, they're not submersibles. They're uh, 1,250 horsepower larger. So once you start going 1,000 horsepower and above, you're kind of limited on the submersible offering. But they also have a grip problem. They're also, so it's really important, not just for the pumping equipment, but how you're going to design the station itself to be able to handle the grit. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's a great point in terms of lesson learned. Yeah, I, I think the, the volume of grit exceeded, uh, I think, anybody's expectation. So, yeah. Well, any uh, uh, final comments you want to add about either this particular project or key takeaways for our listeners regarding stormwater solutions, stormwater management? Couldn't be more proud of what Columbus has accomplished and what Columbus continues to do. I am, you know, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, I'm really pleased at the time that I had in Columbus. And frankly, before I joined the city and, and since I've left the city, they're, they're marching towards a great overall program to, to make the whole community better. Environmentally, you know, they, they've transitioned. Actually, I, I was part of that transition as well to uh, completely revamp their whole wet weather program and strategy and, and uh, to engage the community more. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to watch, and it's been great. I, I think, you know, more folks should look at what Columbus is, is doing, has done. And, uh, and continues to accomplish. So, and the operators are, oh my gosh, they're amazing. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd just like to add that, um, that the, that from the pumping side, uh, the clog, uh, the non-clog solution uh, of being able to, you know, offer a, a pump that's able to handle this, the increase in debris that comes in a stormwater is essential. So uh, we value operator feedback significantly. Um, and that's why, you know, we can utilize that as a reference point for future projects. Say, how was that equipment able to handle the increase in debris going through uh, the tunnel? So, um, and that's kind of one of the things that we're dealing with on the wastewater collection side as well. So, um, I think there is also another solution here with the adjustable frequency drives that just increases the operation. When you have VFTs, you have that much more operation um, in terms of how much you can handle. Um, you know, like Dax was mentioning, you're from, we're from, you know, high season, low season, you can have more flows. Well, I appreciate both of your time coming on here and uh, giving us this overview. Appreciate Thank you, you Amanda. <laughs> Everybody couldn't see me talking with my hands, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> No, thank you. This has been fun. Yeah, it was great. The Solving Water Podcast is produced and distributed by Xylem, a global water technology company of more than 16,000 employees committed to solving critical water and infrastructure challenges worldwide. Stream, download, and subscribe 